0: This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bianculli, in for Terry Gross. Trevor Noah, the host of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, is stepping down next week after seven years. When he took over from Jon Stewart, he brought an international perspective to the show. He's South African, the son of a black mother and white father whose relationship was illegal under apartheid. Noah grew up during the apartheid and post-apartheid eras. He became famous in South Africa as a comic and TV personality and spent years doing stand-up internationally. And on The Daily Show, he developed his own style and audience quickly and intelligently. He became looser and even more daring when hosting remotely during COVID. And by the time he hosted the infamously tricky White House Correspondents Dinner earlier this year, with President Biden in attendance, Trevor Noah was in easy command of his skills and the room. He even joked about his
1: invitation to host the event. You know, I was a little confused about why me, but then I was told that you get your highest approval ratings when a biracial African guy is standing next to you, so... uh...
0: Watching him on The Daily Show, it was often funny and enlightening to hear his take on American life and politics. We're going to listen back to portions of two of Terry's interviews with Trevor Noah. The first was recorded early in 2016, a few months after he'd taken over The Daily Show. It began with a segment from the show in October 2015, when he was comparing Donald Trump's rhetoric with statements made by African presidents and dictators.
1: What I'm trying to say is uh, Donald Trump is presidential. He just happens to be running on the wrong continent. In fact, once once you realize that Trump is basically the perfect African president, You start to notice the similarities everywhere, like the level of self-regard. I say not in a braggadocious way. I've made billions and billions of dollars. I made a tremendous amount of money. I'm really rich. I have a great
0: temperament. They love me anyway, I don't have to do this. I've done an amazing job. I was born with a certain intellect. God helped me by giving me a certain brain.
1: (laughs) I bet that's the one time that God's like, I don't need the praise, it's cool. Um, That's you, that's you, I'm cool. Now, is that extraordinary level of bragging presidential? Well, uh, let's ask a man who actually was president. Idi Amin, former president and best president of Uganda.
2: The people likes me very much. I am very popular. I am very powerful. I am the one who has got the money. I have got a very good brain.
1: I have a very good brain. And I know this because every time I ask people if I have a good brain, they say, of course, Mr. President. Now, please let my family go. You've already killed my sister. I think you've proved your point.
3: That's Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. Trevor Noah, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks so much for coming. Had you seen The Daily Show in South Africa?
1: Yeah, but interestingly enough, when I, when I first started watching The Daily Show, uh, we used to see it on CNN. And so my perception of The Daily Show was very different. I thought that Jon Stewart was a news anchor who didn't take his job seriously because I would always see this You're show. You're kidding, right? I know, I'm being serious. In a lot of regions, CNN actually broadcasts The Daily Show. So there's a global edition of The Daily Show that's one episode. And in countries where there's no Comedy Central or the show itself is not picked up, it's it'll be on CNN. And because it looked like a news show and it had the, the, the same colors as CNN and the ticker and... I just worked under the assumption that it was part of the news uh, programming. And so I was just like, this is is a really funny show, and that's how I knew it.
3: So what is your role now in writing and editing the show?
1: From 8 a.m. in the morning, we start dissecting the news, discussing it, looking for angles, looking for takes, building a show, rewriting it, getting it together, gathering materials. We work throughout the day, and then in the evening... Uh, after we've rehearsed it and rewritten it, then I go out and we we tape the show and then, after that taping, we sit down and we we dissect the show, see what could be better, work to get better every single day uh because that's that's really the nature of a late night show, especially something that's on daily is that you're on um you're on daily, so you know it's 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 not unlike the news, funny enough. I was chatting to Rachel Maddow about it, and she was saying you you the quickest thing you have to learn is." your best show only lasts for a night and your worst show only lasts for a night. And then you're, you're back doing it tomorrow.
3: That leads to manic depression, doesn't it? <laughs> a show's great and you feel great and a show's bad. It's like, oh, this is so horrible.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's why you have to learn to live outside the show. I think one of the biggest things I've had to learn is TV destroys your perspective. You know, when when I think back to myself and I go, if anyone who tries to convince me otherwise, I I have to stop sometimes and go, not what, 25 years ago, I was living in basically uh, a very elevated hut with no running water or, or indoor sanitation. And so like problems, I, I can't trick myself into, into getting stressed by first world problems. Things are going great. I, things are going very, very well.
3: So in your standup comedy, you've talked about being excited about coming to America where you would be defined as black instead of I don't know, colored or mixed race in South Africa because your father is white, your mother is black, and Mm -hmm. you were born during the apartheid era. So you did some comedy in the U.S. about opening a bank account in America and having to fill out your race or ethnicity, and you don't really know what to write in. And a bank representative is helping you fill out the form. So this is Trevor Noah from his 2013
1: album African American. She was really helpful. She was like, she's this blonde woman, and she was like, um, uh, yeah, you can, you can go ahead and fill out everything you need to, and uh, yeah, we'll just go ahead and uh, open that bank account. I said, okay, I, I don't know what to do here. And she was like, um, let me have a look. Well, you can just, yeah, you just go ahead and tick, um, tick whatever race you want to go with. I said, what do you mean, whatever race? <laughs> she was like, well, look, it's just for statistical purposes, so like, you can choose whatever you want, and then you can, you can do it. And I was like, choose whatever? <laughs> I was like, I've never been given that option before. <laughs> and I looked at the boxes, and I mean, there was black, that's the reason I came, the black box was there. I was like, well, I'm, that's it, I'll choose it. But then, but then I looked to the left and there was the white box. And, oh, it looked good, it just. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, it was the same as the other boxes, but ah, oh, there must have been a reason it was first in line. It's just like, you know. <laughs> That was prime box right there. That was just, I looked at that white box and I was like, mm, yeah. Yeah, and so I looked at her and I said, any box? And she was like, yeah, yeah, any box. And I played it safe, I said, so I can go with black? She was like, you know what, a lot of them choose black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so just because she said that, just because she said that, I looked at her and I said, no, you know what, I'm, I'm white, I'm going with white. And then she did this thing that I've come to learn is the reaction of white liberal women in America. Whenever they hear something or see something that they can't truly comprehend, they don't agree with it, but for fear of being judged, they internalize their emotions and then they almost have like this malfunction like a robot. I don't know if you it's amazing to see. Because as soon as I said white, I said, I'm going with white. She went, um, I'm 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 sorry. Did you say Did you say white? I said yes, yes, white. I'm white. She was like, Oh, um, okay,
0: um, okay, um, okay, um okay, 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 like white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 bzz. Bzz,
3: bzz. That was Trevor Noah in 2013. When you started doing comedy, which was when? What year are we talking?
1: I started comedy 2005, I want to say. Yeah, 2005, 2004, somewhere there.
3: So apartheid was already over. Were you performing in front of black and white audiences? Were the audiences met? Yes.
1: Yeah, the audiences. One thing South Africans rushed to do as soon as segregation came down is South Africans rushed to to meet each other. You know, that was a beautiful thing about it is is that a lot of people do want to integrate. A lot of people do want to, but it's just the question is How? And one thing that was great about comedy was it it presented people with the how. It gave them a place to come together and laugh.
3: So what were some of the subjects that you talked about in your early comedy when you were first in front of diverse audiences?
1: First it was, uh, I guess it was just stories. I relayed stories of my life, things that I was going through, observational comedy, anecdotal stuff. And then... And then I spent a lot of time talking about what was happening in society, you know, because I've always been I've always been in the middle, so I've always felt I one thing I, I I I suffer from, and I also feel is my gift is the ability to see the other side. I, you know, I grew up in a world where people were very 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 angry and hated a lot of white people, if not all white people, and I would have to speak up to my friends and say, hey, I know white people that are really cool you know my dad is one of them and so because of my dad i met his friends and people like him who were great so i can't put all white people in the same uh, bucket. and by that same token i would meet white people who would be terrified of black people and i'd have to explain to them and be like hey you can't think like that you can't hold these views because you are you 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 generalizing everybody so i've i've always been on both sides
3: So racial identity is a big part of your comedy when you're doing stand-up. Your father is white. Your mother is black. Your father is, I think, um, of Swiss and German ancestry. Do I have that right? Yeah, he's
1: Swiss. He's Swiss.
3: And your mother is Sosa? Uh, Kossa. Thank you. I don't think I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I know your mother was jailed briefly, I hope. In South Africa, I assume, for uh, for opposing apartheid, for doing some kind of dissenting action?
1: Yes, well, the dissenting action was being with a white person. Oh, that's why she was jailed? Yes, <laughs> yes. Was yes. the white
3: person your father?
1: Yes, he was, yeah.
3: Was he so, jailed so for that, it too?
1: No, 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 no. White people didn't get jailed for that. That was uh, White people were warned and asked not to do it again, but then if you were a black person caught fraternizing across color boundaries then then you'd be arrested. But my mom my mom opposed the system as a whole, so she never let that stand in her way, you know? And I I think I pick up a lot of I, I have a lot of my mom's demeanor is that she never even even when she told me the story, she was never angry. She just went, It's it's a stupid thing, and so I refused to listen to it. But she never came at it from a place of anger. If anything, she defied it and she didn't she didn't give it the credibility that it was trying to create in in the world. And so that's something that I inherited from my mom is that in my family, we just, we're not quick to anger. If anything, you know, I mean, obviously, there are moments where you find things ridiculous or ludicrous, but not quick to anger, rather, rather find a way to laugh about it or to minimize it using humor.
3: So they couldn't live together. Where did they live? And where did you live?
1: Well, I lived with my mom, so the way it works in South Africa is you 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 were allowed to downgrade. so you know you could you could go you could almost forfeit your rights and then go live in an area that was deemed inferior to the one that you're allowed to live in. so i was I was living with my mother in Soweto and my grandmother and the rest of our family. And then my father lived um he lived in the city center. and so I guess there were there were times when my mom would sneak us in to go meet and and hang out as a family when we could uh but for the most part that's where that's where I spend most of my time
3: so describe what your neighborhood in Soweto was like when you were growing up
1: oh it was wonderful it was um it was electric you know it's a even today soweto is a it's a beautiful community you know everyone everyone knows everybody's names you know there's a there's just a sense of togetherness and i think because every everyone was going through the same thing it was it was a shared experience it was it didn't feel like it was suffering you knew that there was a cloud hanging over a nation but there were there were lots of moments of joy within that time period so you know the streets were dusty there there weren't many tarred streets um you know, the houses were, were very modest because the government would allocate land and that's where you could live. So everyone everyone found a way to, to make ends meet. I mean, there were there were seven or eight of us at one point living in a in a one one roomed house or two roomed house at some point. And, you know, we had outdoor sanitation. It was like a, everyone every four or five houses would share one toilet outdoors and, and then you would you would have one one faucet outdoors that you could go and get your water from, and and so this is but this is how everyone lived, and because everyone was doing it, then then it's normal. So you know, I'm I'm very lucky in that I never look back at it as uh, as a as a tough upbringing because it was the only upbringing I knew, and everyone was doing it with me. So essentially, it's like a, it's like being in a very stringent fitness class. If everyone's <laughs> suffering together, it doesn't seem so bad.
3: Were your parents still a couple when apartheid ended?
1: No, 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 they weren't, they weren't. Well, I think they were, let me think, actually they were probably until I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. Um, But they they remained friends, I guess, because they had been through so much that I always knew them uh, the way they were. So I wouldn't call it a split because essentially they were never together. So they spent as much time together after... Uh, apartheid as they did before.
3: But there didn't need to be a charade anymore. Like what what was the charade that you would have to enact when the family got together under apartheid?
1: Oh, well, I I wasn't enacting anything. I was a kid, so I was just I was just living my life. Uh, my mom would she was she went to very elaborate, uh, you know, through very elaborate schemes. I mean, she would disguise herself as a maid to act like she was working in uh, in my dad's apartment. So that she wouldn't get caught. She would act like she was babysitting me for somebody else. And, you know, it was it was all these, I mean, very elaborate scams, I must admit. Uh, very funny when you think about it because everyone, you know, everyone thinks of like a, a maid outfit or as like a, a very sexual or interesting uh, costume. And yet my mom, she was like, this is a functional thing I need. To get to uh, to get my family together, so so that she was going through all of that. My dad didn't have to do much because uh, he was on the I guess the right side of the law, as they would say. Um, so yeah, so my mom was doing all the heavy lifting for all of us.
3: So after your parents separated, your mother married a man who became the father of your two brothers. How old were you when yes. they married?
1: I think I was maybe twelve years old or mm-hmm. th- thirteen. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe around there. So you've described him as becoming alcoholic and abusive. Did he abuse you? No, no, no. No, I my mom was very protective of me. So I didn't I didn't suffer, you know, much of that, but I mean a home a home that is terrorized by a by an abusive drunk is is terrorized all the same. You know, I I feel like we were all in the same boats because we were. Uh but physically I was I was spared much of that torment.
3: And what did he, did he hit, he hit her?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, it's widely documented and it's something something my mom raised me not to be ashamed to speak about because that was always the biggest thing she said was we live in a world where, for some strange reason, women are taught to be ashamed of the fact that they have been abused and then the victims are running around with the shame whereas we should be shaming those who are the abusers. So, yeah, so he hit my mom and... You know, and, and and that that was the craziest thing is you're living in a world where it happens. It happens sporadically, like you know, it wasn't an everyday thing, uh, but it was w- once is enough. You know, but it was it was a it was a very harrowing experience to go through, um, and so you know, the combination of of the alcohol and and a bad temper led to that environment.
3: She left him, and then yeah. went with another man. And when he found out about this other man, after he and your mother were divorced, he shot her twice.
1: Yeah, well, my mom didn't leave to go to another man. So my mom completely left uh, the home, moved out with my brothers. I I was already out of the home at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And she went and and set up a new life. Um, And then at that point, one day they came home from church and then... uh, and then he pitched up, and he was drunk, and uh, and then he threatened to kill the whole family, including himself, and and then he shot my mom twice,
3: in the face and in the back.
1: Yep, that's correct.
3: But she survived.
1: She did. She did. What kind of shape uh, is she in
3: now? Did she have a full recovery?
1: Oh yeah, my mom is my mom is is a is a soldier, and now I mean now we joke that she's bulletproof. Um, because it was, I mean, it was, it really was a miracle and, and the doctors hated using that term and they were the ones who said it, you know. Um, My mom is deeply, deeply religious and her and I have always fought about religion over the years. I challenge her on it and she completely immerses herself in it. But then, I mean, when, when someone gets shot in the head and suffers no brain damage and is alive and needs to go through no surgery, and a bullet completely passes through the head, then you, then you, <laughs> you almost have to concede. I mean, who was I to say I don't believe in miracles when, when I've seen this uh, happen in my life? So, so you know, we 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 laughed about it, we joked. I mean, that's that's really the hallmark of my family. Is I mean, a few days afterwards in the hospital. My mom was the person who cracked the first joke. You know, I was I was crying by her bedside and, and she said to me she said don't cry. Look on the bright side. She said now you're officially the best-looking person in the family. So, <laughs> you know, so so we've you know, we've we've overcome a lot because of because of laughter. I think um, that's why that's why I love comedy so much. It's because it's the thing that has kept my family going through every single type of adversity.
0: Trevor Noah speaking to Terry Gross in 2016. Last week, he unveiled his third stand-up comedy special for Netflix called I Wish You Would. Next week, he steps down as host of Comedy Central's The Daily Show and is about to embark on a new stand-up tour. After a break, we'll listen to another of Terry's conversations with Trevor Noah. And film critic Justin Chang reviews The Eternal Daughter, in which Tilda Swinton plays both a mother and her daughter. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. We're listening back to our interviews with Trevor Noah, the host of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, who's stepping down next week. He took over in 2015 after the departure of Jon Stewart. We're going to listen to another interview with Noah, recorded with Terry later in 2016, after the publication of his memoir, Born a Crime. Trevor Noah was born in South Africa in 1984, during apartheid,
3: Your book is called Born a Crime because you are officially the product of a crime. Your mother is black and your father is white, part Swiss, part German. And your book opens with the law, with a word-for-word word version of the law that made that relationship illegal. Yeah. It's the reason why your book is called Born a Crime. I want you to actually read the wording of this 1927 South African law.
1: So this is the Immorality Act of 1927. To prohibit illicit carnal intercourse between Europeans and natives and other acts in relation thereto. Be it enacted by the King's Most Excellent Majesty, the Senate, and the House of Assembly of the Union of South Africa as follows. Point number one. Any European male who has illicit carnal intercourse with a native female, and any native male who has illicit carnal intercourse with a European female, shall be guilty of an offense and liable on conviction to imprisonment for a period not exceeding five years. Any native female who permits any European male to have illicit carnal intercourse with her and any European female who permits any native male to have illicit carnal intercourse with her shall be guilty of an offense and liable on conviction to imprisonment for a period not exceeding four years. So
3: how aware were you growing up that you were the product of a crime and if people saw you, they might realize that your mother was officially guilty.
1: I wasn't aware at all. And I was really lucky that I wasn't aware because I think that would have changed my childhood and my view on the world uh, drastically. You know, I I existed in a space where my mother was a black woman, my father was a white man. And that's how I saw the world. It was just like, you know, some dads are white and some moms are black. And that's that's how it is. Um,
3: but that's not how it was in South Africa. So how were you yeah. protected so that you were able to see yourself and your parents that way?
1: Well, it was just how my parents treated me. It was the world they decided to show me. I was really sheltered. My grandmother kept me locked in the house when I was staying you know, with the family in Soweto. And every household, for instance, had to have a registry of everyone who lived in that house. And so the police would check in on you randomly and they would come into the house and they would look through that registry and look at all the names of all the people uh, who were registered to be living in the house and they would you know uh, cross reference that with the actual uh, inhabitants of the of the dwelling and i was never on that that piece of paper i was always hidden my grandmother would hide me somewhere if the police did show up and it was a it was a constant game of hide and seek but i didn't know why anything was happening you're a child if you're told to go to the bedroom and you know go under the bed, then you go under the bed. But you don't. I never saw it as a as a fearful moment. I never saw it as something uh, that was governing my life because I was I was so young that I didn't ask questions.
3: Your mother was arrested several times during your childhood yes. during apartheid because of her relationship with your father because they had carnal sexual intercourse. Yes, <laughs> and you were and you were the product of that. Um So, how much time would you estimate she actually spent in prison?
1: I was really lucky in that my mom and dad never got caught in the act, so to speak. So my mom was caught fraternizing with my dad. My mom was caught you know in the building that my father lived in. My mom was caught in a white neighborhood past curfew without the right permits. My mother was caught. In transition, and that was key because uh, had she been caught in the act, then, as the law says, she could have spent anywhere up to four years in prison, so on and off, my mom would spend a week in jail, she would spend a day in jail here, a week again, a week and a half, two weeks. My grandmother tells me stories of how you know because I would be at the house i wouldn 't notice that my mom was gone because she would be at work sometimes, so it was just like time when my mom would be gone, and my grand would tell me she'll be she 'll be back. And nobody knew where anybody was. The police didn't afford you a phone call. You just disappeared for a while. And what was scary was we lived in a state where some people disappeared forever. You know, if the police believed that they were planning any form of resistance against the state, then you were just gone. Nobody knew where you were. And you just hoped to see that family member again.
3: I found it interesting that there were black people who also hated your mother for having relations with a white man. You tell a story about being in a minibus, which basically functioned like a taxi. Yeah. There were no yeah. taxis in, in the townships. So you're in a minibus and the driver, realizing that you're your mother's son, you know, figures out that she must have had relations with a white man. Mm-hmm. And he starts calling her a whore. Yeah. And she tells you when, when the minibus... Uh, slows down, you got to jump. And she like throws you out of the van. You had an infant brother at the time. So she jumps out holding him in such a way to protect him when she jumps out. And then you had to hit the ground and run. Um, But anyways, so it must have been totally bizarre to get that kind of uh, hatred from black people
1: too. But that's the the sadness and the, I guess, that is the strange part of the human brain that... you know people have studied for eons is is hatred and self-hatred you know people going how can you hate somebody that is of you but that's that's what people do successfully in any regime that is governed by hate you can convince people that the problem is not coming from the top but is rather being created by the people who are being oppressed and so what the apartheid system was really good at doing was convincing groups to hate one another. And so what you do is you convince black people that the reason they are being oppressed is because there are some within their community who just can't behave and if only they could behave then everyone else would have more freedoms and liberties, which of course is not true, but if you can if you can convince people of that, then you can get them to focus their hatred on their fellow man who is trying to achieve freedom as opposed to focusing on the oppressive government and we see that happen all over the world it's regardless of race it's a tactic that is used over and over successfully
0: trevor noah speaking to terry gross in 2016. more after a break this is fresh air let's get back to terry's 2016 interview with trevor noah who has a new comedy special on netflix and is stepping down next week as host of comedy central's the daily show after seven years,
3: your mother sounds incredibly brave because she was always kind of flaunting the law when she married your stepfather, who's they're separated now. Yes, um, yeah. Um, he wanted her to be like the traditional wife, and she refused to yes. be that. Um, she, like you said, she just defied all conventions when she wanted to, and she talked back to people. <laughs> I mean, she,
1: she, she. It's it's funny you say that because I. When I wrote the book, I thought that I was the hero of my story. And in writing it, I came to realize uh, over time that my mom was the hero and I was, you know, I was just a punk ass sidekick. I was lucky to come (laughs) along for the ride. Um, And she really is an amazing woman. And the world we lived in, in in South Africa at the time was a was a very matriarchal society because so many black men had been removed from the home,
3: either in prison or in exile, either in prison
1: or in exile, or even sent off to work in the mines. And you know, and so families were living separately from the fathers. And so, although according to African culture, men were the head of the household, the truth is, women were the ones who were raising everybody, including men, and. Growing up with my mother that was something I really learned to appreciate.
3: Because your mother was black and your father was white and you you were officially designated as colored yes. in South Africa. Wherever you were, you were the anomaly. I was. Yeah. <laughs> so it was always hard for you to figure out like where do you fit? And um, you, you seem to have learned so many ways of dealing with that, including learning different languages and different dialects. So how many languages do you speak?
1: I speak six currently. Name them. Uh, so I speak English, uh, obviously. Uh, Afrikaans, which is uh, a, deri- a, deri- a derivative of Dutch uh, that we have in South Africa. And then I speak African languages. So I speak Zulu. I speak Xhosa, um, I speak Tswana, And uh, I speak um, Tsonga. And uh, so those are my languages, the core. And then I don't claim German, but I can have a conversation in it. Uh, So I'm trying to make that officially my seventh languages, and then hopefully I can learn Spanish.
3: And it sounds like this is something you picked up from your mother who also spoke several languages and used them in a very kind of cunning way when she needed to to make sure that she wasn't, um, you know, uh, imprisoned, or, although she was imprisoned. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but she, 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 she got, got out, out of, of many sometimes. situations, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a passage from your book that I'd like you to read that's about how your mother used language and how you use language okay. to help navigate difficult situations.
1: Living with my mom, I saw how she used language to cross boundaries, handle situations, navigate the world, we were in a shop once and the shopkeeper right in front of us turned to his security guard and he said in Afrikaans, Folk die swartes. Net no steel Follow those blacks in case they steal something. My mother turned around and said in beautiful, fluent Afrikaans, Why don't you follow these blacks so you can help them find what they're looking for? Ach, yammer, the man said apologizing in Afrikaans. Then, and this was the funny thing, he didn't apologize for being racist. He merely apologized for aiming his racism at us. Oh, I'm so sorry, he said. I thought you were like the other blacks. You know how they love to steal. I learned to use language like my mother did. I would simulcast, give you the program in your own tongue. I'd get suspicious looks from people just walking down the street. Where are you from? They'd ask. I'd reply in whatever language they'd addressed me in using the same accent that they used. There would be a brief moment of confusion and then the suspicious look would disappear. Oh, okay. I thought you were a stranger. We're good then. It became a tool that served me my whole life. One day as a young man, I was walking down the street and a group of Zulu guys was walking behind me, closing in on me. And I could hear them talking to one another about how they were going to mug me. Let's get this white guy. You go to his left and I'll come up behind him. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't run. So I just spun around real quick and said, Yo guys, Why don't we just mug someone together? I'm ready. Let's do it. They looked shocked for a moment, and then they started laughing. Oh, sorry, dude. We thought you were something else. We weren't trying to take anything from you. We were trying to steal from white people. Have a good day, man. They were ready to do to me violent harm until they felt that we were part of the same tribe. And then we were cool. That and so many other smaller incidents in my life made me realize that language, even more than color, defines who you are to people. I became a chameleon. My color didn't change, but I could change your perception of my color. If you spoke to me in Zulu, I replied to you in Zulu. If you spoke to me in Tswana, I replied to you in Tswana. Maybe I didn't look like you, but if I spoke like you, I was you. That's
3: Trevor Noah reading from his new memoir, Born a Crime. Um, I like that passage so much in part because when I hear you uh, on The Daily Show and in some of your stand-up comedy that I've heard on, on recording, you do accents and voices so well. Like, you can mimic other people really well. And it seems like that's something you learned to do, do out of self-preservation when you were young.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it was something I inherited from my mother who learned to do it. You know, I, like a, a baby duckling, was merely mimicking the survival traits that, that my mother possessed. And I came to learn very quickly that language was a powerful, powerful tool. Language and accents govern so much of how people think about other people.
3: I want to ask you another question about your life. We've talked about how race and being biracial affected you growing up in South Africa. You mentioned in the book that you had terrible acne as a teenager, like really bad. Yeah. Okay, so that affects how people literally see you. It covers your face. So people were already seeing you through a certain lens because of your race, you know, because of being biracial, and you didn't fit in any place as a result of that. How did having acne complicate your whole sense of identity?
1: Well, the one thing I was lucky, I feel I was lucky about is when this happened, I was in high school, And during the period I was in high school, race almost went out of the window because high school is oftentimes almost like a classist society. But the classism isn't about money. It's about coolness. What is your cool factor? How much cool do you possess? And that determines where you go. Are you good at sports? Then you get to go into the coolest places. Are you super good looking? Then you get to be in the cool club and so on and so forth. And I possessed none of those qualities. I wasn't good at sports. Uh, I was on the chess team. Uh, I had, like, I had such bad acne. I mean, people ask me now; they go, "Well, let me see pictures." I'm like, I didn't take pictures for that reason. I I shied away from any type of photograph that you would find because I I thought that I was hideous. Because in my eyes, I was. I had to go on medication repeatedly, and the medication makes you suicidal and depressed, and then you have to go off it because of your your uh, your kidneys. And it was just such a trying time. And, I mean, in school, that that's your cachet. How you look and what you can do determine everything in school. And, you know, so I was one of those kids who just stayed in a corner and watched the world pass them by. You know, you, you, you're watching the world, and the world exists without you.
3: You, you mentioned that the medication led to depression. And in... Um the New York Times Sunday Book Review has a Q and A um, called "By the Book," and you were interviewed for that. I think it was in that that you said the question was, "What books would you have that uh, we would be surprised that you're mm-hmm. reading?" And you said, "Self help books about depression." Yes, yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. That's one of the biggest things, and I'm I'm proud to say that. That's another stigma that I think we need to get rid of is improving our minds and our mental health. You know, when, when you suffer from depression, you go, "This is something that I have, and I can I can work on it." You know. Um, I often think of depression, though, as more of a as more of a symptom than a cause. You know, I go I trace depression back to things. So I go, okay, I look back and I say my self-esteem was affected because of my skin and because my family had no money and I was ashamed of how poor I was. And I look at all of that and I was trying to hide myself. And so I felt like I was less than I was. And so that then leads to you being depressed. And and I work on these things, you know, and I think all of us should seek help and and not help is in a, you know, help shouldn't be seen as a, as a frightening thing. Help shouldn't be seen as a weak thing. You get help at the gym. No one complains about that. You get help from your trainer. That's, that's, that's commonplace. And I think we need to spend more time doing that with mental help. You know, a lot of us have issues that we, we don't work on and we don't deal with. Um, and I try. I try my utmost.
3: Trevor Noah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm a huge fan, so thank you. For, this is great that we get to be in the same studio for a change.
0: Trevor Noah speaking to Terry Gross in 2016. His newest stand-up comedy special premiered last week on Netflix, and he steps down next week after hosting The Daily Show on Comedy Central for seven years. Here he is, talking to that show's audience during a recent taping, explaining that one reason he wants to quit the show is to do more traveling. He asks for suggestions about where to go, and one woman suggests Easter Island.
1: Easter Island. Eastern.
3: Robert. Easter Island. Off the
1: coast. Easter Island. I thought you said Eastern Ireland. I was like, no one's ever said it like that. It's like Eastern Ireland. Ah, yes, Trevor. A part of Ireland nobody's ever been to before. A special part that nobody's ever been to. Okay, Easter Island, all right, all right. I'm gonna check it out, I will. And Ireland, I'm gonna go back to Ireland. This is, it's too much fun. The world is like, you know, if you can't travel, travel. That's, that's the way I see it. Um, and I, I've, you know, I was locked up like many of you were. We all, and then, you know, now, see see what's out there in the world, you know, get out and about and, you know, taste the food and, you know, that experience, tasting a new thing, being like, ah, oh, this is disgusting, but I love the experience. I love the experience.
0: Trevor Noah, who's leaving The Daily Show next week after a very impressive seven-year run. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews The Eternal Daughter, in which Tilda Swinton plays dual roles as a mother and her own daughter. This is Fresh Air. In the new movie The Eternal Daughter, Tilda Swinton plays two characters, a mother and a daughter, who have gone to spend a winter holiday at a hotel in Wales. It's the latest from the English writer-director Joanna Hogg, best known for her recent films The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part II. The Eternal Daughter opens in theaters this week. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review.
2: I have to admit that when I heard Tilda Swinton would be playing two roles in The Eternal Daughter, my immediate reaction was something like, what else is new? Swinton is a marvelous actor and a gifted multitasker. Maybe you remember her playing twin sisters in Hail Caesar, or Okja, or taking on three different roles in the recent remake of Suspiria. But The Eternal Daughter, the latest movie written and directed by Joanna Hogg, might be the most effective and moving casting stunt of Swinton's career. She plays a filmmaker, Julie, and her mother, Rosalind, who have come to stay at a remote Welsh hotel for a few days before Christmas. They've booked a double room for themselves and Rosalind's dog, Lewis, played by one of Swinton's own spaniels. That's about it for the cast, save a few members of the hotel staff, including an amusingly snippy receptionist played by Carly Sophia Davis. There doesn't appear to be any other guests, as Rosalind notes one evening, when she comes downstairs and meets Julie in the dining room.
1: I got you a nice glass of wine. Thank you very much. Oh, goodness me. Are we early or late? I mean... Are we the only people staying here? Have you worked that out yet? I know, I don't know.
2: There was no one here when I arrived. Oh, look at that. Thank you very much. While it unfolds at a measured pace, the Eternal Daughter is immediately gripping. Hogg has structured the movie as a kind of ghost story, and she's clearly having fun with the conventions of the genre. The hotel is a marvelously creaky old estate in the middle of nowhere, shrouded in mists and moonlight. Strange noises disturb Julie's sleep at night, and at one point someone, it's not clear who, opens the door to their room, and Louis gets out. Don't worry, this isn't one of those slasher movies where the family pet winds up dead. Hogg isn't really trying to scare us but she has a wonderful feel for gothic atmosphere, something she heightens by shooting on 16mm film and playing eerie flute music during Julie's walks on the hotel grounds. All in all, the movie is a splendid reminder of how much magic a smart, subtle filmmaker can conjure without a massive visual effects budget. And the most magical thing about it is Swinton's double casting. Hogg shrewdly downplays her own gimmick, she rarely places Julie and Rosalind in the same frame, instead cutting between them during their many conversations. That must have made shooting less expensive, with minimal need for body doubles or digital trickery. The back-and-forth editing style also works well for the script, given that this mother and daughter tend to speak in polite, hesitant tones. Rarely do they step on each other's sentences. They clearly love and dote on each other, Julie, full of warmth and vigor, takes good care of Rosalind, who tires easily and isn't in the best of health. But there's also a darker undertow to their relationship that gradually comes into focus. We learn that Rosalind was sent to stay at this place years ago, during World War II, when she was still a child. She has some happy memories of her time here, but also a lot of traumatic ones, and Julie, we realize wants to mine those memories for a future film project. Here's where things get complicated, since Julie is an alter ego for Joanna Hogg herself, and Rosalind is a stand-in for her own mother. This isn't the first of Hogg's movies to draw on her family life. I loved her two souvenir films about her early years as a student filmmaker in the 1980s. But The Eternal Daughter, set closer to the present day, is a different kind of cinematic memoir, more playful and more mysterious. In reminiscing about her own relationship with her mother, Hogg raises all kinds of ideas about grief, loss, and memory. She's also questioning herself. Does she have any right to probe her mother's personal history for her own artistic inspiration? I don't know the answer, and I don't know if Hogg does either. But I'm grateful to have spent time with these two characters, and the great actor who plays them. Swinton's casting isn't just a stunt. It brilliantly conveys the uncomfortable transference of identity that often happens between mothers and daughters. At the same time, when they communicate, Julie and Rosalind show a certain reserve, shying away from confrontation or even emotion. But the shattering climax of The Eternal Daughter is nothing if not emotional. It leaves us with the intriguing notion that maybe all love stories are ghost stories, to the degree that we're all haunted, in some way, by the memories of those we love.
0: Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. On Monday's Fresh Air, writer and director Mike White talks about his Emmy Award-winning HBO series The White Lotus. Season two is about wealthy Americans vacationing in a luxurious hotel in Sicily and how sex, passionate, indifferent, transactional, is messing with their lives. Mike White also wrote the film School of Rock and created the HBO series Enlightened. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B.